In the middle of the 19th century, there was a group of college students who were vacationing for a few weeks in London, England. They wanted to go visit the Metropolitan Tabernacle and hear the famous Charles Haddon Spurgeon preach. On that particular Sunday, they arrived early as to get the entire experience. They began to tour the campus and they bumped into a gentleman. He asked if they wanted a guided tour of the facility and they said, absolutely. At the conclusion of the tour, the gentleman asked the college students, would you like to see the boiler room? Now, just between me and you, they had no desire to see the boiler room. After all, it was a hot, sweltering July Sunday morning. But they didn't want to offend the old man, so they decided to go. He took them down the steps, through the corridor, around the corner, and stopped in front of the door. He opened it quietly, as if not to disturb anyone. To the shock of the students, when they looked into the boiler room, they saw over 700 people on their faces in prayer, lifting up prayers unto the Lord. The gentleman quietly shut the door as to not interrupt them. And he said, the reason we have power in the sanctuary upstairs above us is because these people are praying in the boiler room beneath us. They gather each and every Sunday before all of our activities begin. They fall on their faces before the Lord and they pray. The gentleman then introduced himself to the college-age students. And he was none other than Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Spurgeon is not the only one to know that the church's power is predicated on prayer. The Apostle Paul also understood that as well. Now, Paul does not find himself in an English boiler room, but he does find himself in a Roman jail cell. And from that vantage point, he prays. He prays for the church both then and now. If you have your Bible, I invite you to take it and turn to Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. Today, we continue our study entitled, It's by Grace. Once you've found your place in Scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Ephesians chapter 3, let's begin at verse 14. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that's at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. In this passage, you and I discover why we pray and what we ought to pray. Paul begins, for this reason, I kneel before the Father in heaven. Paul says that he kneels. He kneels out of submission, out of surrender. He acknowledges that God is his king, that he is the servant, so he comes in prayer and he kneels before the Father. It needs to be noted that the most popular prayer posture in the Greco-Roman world was to stand. 
Jesus echoes this for us in his story that he told about the tax collector and the Pharisee who went to the temple to pray. And while they pray different prayers, both of them are standing before the Lord. The tax collector stands at a distance. He beats his chest and cannot lift his eyes to heaven, says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. The tax collector stands in the middle of the temple. He prays to himself or about himself. They pray two different prayers, but both of them are standing. The most popular posture of prayer in the Greco-Roman world was to stand before the Lord. But throughout the Bible, there's no particular posture that's elevated above another. It's in Genesis 18 that Abraham stands before the Lord in prayer. In 1 Chronicles chapter 17, it is David who is described as seated before the Lord in prayer. Jesus is portrayed for us in Matthew 26 as falling on his face to the ground in prayer. Here, Paul is saying, I kneel before the Father in prayer. I don't think that the posture is all that important, but how we go before God is vitally important. Let me ask you this morning, why do you pray? Oftentimes we pray because we want something, right? We pray because we're in need of something. Oh God, please help me to do well on the math test. Oh God, please help me to make the basketball team. Oh God, please help me to get into my favorite college of choice. Oh God, please help her to say yes uh, when I propose to her. Oh God, please help us to conceive. Oh God, please help our marriage. Oh God, please heal our body and help us. Oh God, please touch us in a profound, miraculous way. Oftentimes we pray simply because we want something. Or we think that we need something. Most of the time, we go before God in prayer because we want him to do something for us. But why did Paul pray? Paul says, for this reason, I kneel. That three-word phrase, for this reason, is a literary device. This is the third time in the Ephesian letter that we've heard it. We first discover it in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. Then we find it in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. And here we find it for the third time in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. For this reason. It's a literary hook. It's a literary device that hooks the reader and catapults us to a previous passage. For this reason I pray. What is the reason? It must be revealed to us in the previous passage. So that is a hook that catapults us to the previous passage. For this reason I kneel before the Father. That forces us to go back to Ephesians chapter 3 verse 1. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ. You recall that in the first 13 verses of Ephesians chapter 3, Paul speaks about this great mystery. He is a steward of the mystery of God. And a mystery is not a whodunit that you have to figure out by examination, but a biblical mystery is divine truth that is revealed through revelation of the Holy Spirit. So what is the mystery of God? What is the mystery of the Bible? He says in verse 6 of chapter 3 that the mystery of the gospel is that Gentiles are together with Israel in salvation. It is mysterious. It is profound. It only comes by revelation for us to realize that anyone and everyone can come to God by faith in Jesus Christ. For God is no respecter of persons. He doesn't show favoritism. He accepts anyone from any nation who will fear him and do what is right. This is a profound mystery in Colossians chapter 1 verse 27 the apostle puts the cookies on the bottom shelf in a very succinct way he says the mystery is this Christ in you the hope of glory 
That's the mystery of the Bible, that Christ, the infinite sovereign Savior of the universe, can dwell and desires to set up shop in your frail life and in my fragile life. That God in us, the hope of glory, this is the mystery. Why does Paul pray? It's not because he wants something, it's because he's received something. He's received the revelation of that great mystery that God now dwells in his heart. And because of that reason, he says, I must pray for this reason. I kneel before the Father. But that three-word phrase in chapter 3, verse 1, propels us back to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. For this reason, I've not stopped praying for you since I heard about your faith. You may recall that when we walk through Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 and following, that this is a prayer that Paul begins to intertwine and, uh, into the Ephesian correspondence. You may recall that when we spoke about this, I said that Paul wants the church to be hip with Jesus, H-I-P, for you to know the hope to which God has called you, the inheritance which is yours in Jesus Christ, and the power, the same power that God exerted when he raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that God has exerted in your life, though you were dead, yet Christ has made you alive. And so Paul is describing that he, he wants the church to know this power. He then proceeds to describe how Christ is exalted and elevated. He is matchless. He is mighty. He is not just above us, but he is far above us so that everything is under his feet, everything under his power, everything under his jurisdiction. There is nothing that's out of bounds for Jesus because he's high and exalted. Yet chapter 2, verse 1, but as for you, you are dead in your sins and transgressions. You can't miss the stark contrast that Jesus is alive and elevated. You and I are dead in our dismal sins and deeds. Yet because of his love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, has made us alive in Christ Jesus. It is by grace that we have been saved, not by works, so that no one may boast. It's, it's, it is a gift from God given unto you and unto me. So Paul says, for this reason I pray. Why? Not only because of the mystery, but because of the fact I was still born before the Lord, yet God has awakened my reality unto my need for him. And though I was far away from God, he's brought me near through the blood of Christ. I pray because of salvation, Paul says. I pray not only because of the mystery, but also because of the grace of salvation that's demonstrated in my life. And then that must propel us and catapult us to the very beginning of the passage. For the introduction of the letter, Paul says, we pray unto the God the Father who has chosen us, God the Son who has redeemed us, and God the Spirit who has sealed our salvation. For God chose us before the very foundation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be his sons and his daughters, adopted children of God, according to his pleasure and his good will. Paul says, I pray because I've been sovereignly selected before the very foundation of the world. Before I ever knew God, God knew me and he selected me. God the Father has chosen me and God the Son has redeemed me. He's purchased me and God the Spirit has sealed my salvation both now and forevermore. For these reasons, I kneel down to pray. Why does Paul pray? It's not because he wants to get something. 
It's not because he has a need and he's trying to stiff arm God. It's not because he's trying to manipulate the Messiah. It's not because he's just trying to say, God, this is my laundry list. This is my grocery list of what you've got to do for me. No, he says, I kneel and pray just because of who God is. So church, why do you pray? I got to be honest with you today. If you're anything like me, there are a lot of times I pray because I am completely and utterly selfish. I pray because I want something. I pray because I think I need something. And I may kind of try to bathe it in spiritual talk and say, well, I want you to do this and this for somebody else. But still, it's because of a desire that I have. And oftentimes, you and I pray just out of purely selfish motives. But Paul says, I pray for this reason. What is this reason? It's because the mystery's been made known to me. It's because God has saved me by his grace. It's because God has chosen me before the very foundation of the world. For these reasons, I kneel down to pray. So why do you pray? May it be that you and I pray because of who God is, not because of what we want. May it be that we're not trying to get something from God. We're just trying to give God his glory, his praise, his due. We kneel to pray simply because of who God is. Now, secondly, what do you ask for? What do you pray? If this passage is about why we pray and what we pray, then let me ask you, what do you pray for? And oftentimes we, once again, pray that God will do something in our lives that we can't do for ourselves. We ask God to meet our needs and our greeds, don't we? That's what we pray for. Oftentimes we pray that God will meet a perceived need or perceived greed that we have. And many times our prayers are overwhelmingly selfish. Yet what does Paul pray for? He asked God to do three things for the church. The first one's in verse 16 of our passage. I pray, Paul says, that God may strengthen you with his power. Did you ask God for that for other folks? I pray that God may strengthen you with his power. I pray that God may strengthen you, sister, with his power. What power is he talking about? He's talking about the same power that God exerted upon Christ when he raised him from the dead, the same power that God exerted upon your dead life when you were dead in your sins, but God has made you alive in Christ Jesus. Stop and think about that. The same power, the same explosive power, the same godly power that God used on Easter Sunday is the same power that he used in my life on April the 15th. 15th, 1981, when he raised my dead life, uh, my dead body unto life. The same power when you came to faith in Jesus Christ, that same power that God used upon Christ, he used upon you so that though you were dead, you were raised back to life. That same power, Paul says, I pray that will not only give you salvation, but it will bolster you every day of your life. That same power that God used how many years ago to awaken inside of you a desire and a hunger for holy things of God. I pray that same power will accompany you every single day of your life. I pray, Paul says, that God may strengthen you. You do know that God is able to do that, right? He's able to strengthen you so you can overcome temptation. He's able to strengthen you to provide a way of escape. He's able to strengthen you to give you guidance for every day of life. He's able to strengthen you. You do know he's able to do that, right? J.B. Phillips wrote a book that was entitled, Your God is Too Small. 
In essence, what he writes is that we have crafted a God made in our own image. He says our God, oftentimes, is too remote, too disinterested, and too inept. In other words, J.B. Phillips writes, he's too much like you, and he's too much like me. He's too remote, he's too disinterested, and he's too inept. He's too much like us. Our God is not like us. Our God is holy. Our God is loving. Our God is merciful. Our God is gracious. Our God is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. Our God never falls asleep at the wheel. Our God never takes a day off. Our God never tires, slumbers, or sleeps. Our God is always attentive, always active, always engaged. Our God is God all by himself. Paul says, I pray that this God may strengthen you with his power so that Christ may dwell in you. That's what he writes. So that Christ may dwell in you. The word dwell means be at home. I pray, Paul says, that you may be strengthened with God's power so that Christ is at home in you. So that Christ can set up shop in your life. So Christ can dwell in you. So that Christ can abide in you. It was Robert Munger who wrote a book that was entitled, My Heart, His Home. And he said, oftentimes, um, Christ comes into my life and he wants to take a guided tour of my existence. And when he comes into the various rooms and compartments and places of my life, he finds where I've junked up the place. And he's got to clean it up. And he says he does this on a routine basis. And he always starts by going to my library. Now, Robert Munger, when he refers to library, he's referring to the mind. Jesus always invades my mind. And he sees the thoughts that I've been having. Those thoughts that are ungodly, those thoughts that are unwholesome, those thoughts that junk up the library of my mind. And he wants to clean out my thoughts. Paul oftentimes speaks about how we are to set our mind on things above. He oftentimes tells us what things we ought to think about. That tells us as the reader of the book and as a student of the book and a child of God, that because God's spirit dwells inside of us, we have the capacity to direct our thoughts. We have the capacity that when an inappropriate thought flies across the screen of our mind, we have the power to evict it, not in our own strength, but because of God who strengthens us with his power. On a Sunday night a couple of weeks ago, I told you that um, my family and I, we, we, had, we switched to direct TV, not because we wanted to, but because the other company... Uh, Began to increase the prices like 42.5%. And I thought to myself, <laughs> no. And so I called DirecTV and I said, okay, what deal can you give me? And you know, uh, they've got to go through all their, all their promos and everything. And, and one of their mottos is don't just watch TV, but direct TV. It's kind of cute, isn't it? Yeah. Don't just watch TV, but direct TV. What they're saying is you have the capacity to tell us and direct what stations you want and you can direct whatever you want to watch. In a very similar way, the Apostle Paul says the same thing. Don't just think your thoughts, but direct your thoughts. Just because a thought comes into your mind, it doesn't mean you have to fall prey to that thought. You can evict it. Elsewhere in the book of Colossians, Paul says, take captive every thought. 
That word captive is an abusive term, is a violent word. It means to arrest. It means to wrestle to the ground. It means to cuff and stuff. In a proverbial sense, it means to uh, give a punch in the face. You have the power and the capacity to beat up any thought that's unholy that comes into your mind. And in the divine court, there's no such thing as police brutality when it comes to ungodly thoughts that godly people wage upon those ungodly thoughts. You have the capacity to evict, to arrest, to take captive every thought that comes in and junks up your mind. Paul says, you do this. Robert Munger in his book says that Jesus always comes through and he starts in the library of my mind. Then he goes to my dining room. And there he takes a look at the appetites of my existence. Those things that I indulge in. Those things that I feast upon. And he sees the appetites of my existence. And oftentimes they're very vile and very selfish, Robert Munger writes. He sees the appetites, those things that I, that I give myself to. Robert Munger makes a suggestion. He says that when Jesus comes in, he replaces the menu. Not that we have uh, worldliness, but we have godliness at our disposal. So he says, for us, just like he said to Ezekiel, eat this scroll, feast on his word, devour this, digest this word of God. Oh, my friends, let me encourage you. Um, what is the first thing that you look at every morning? Oftentimes, first thing when you wake up, you go to the smartphone, don't you? And you check uh, the news feed or you check Facebook you check some social app, you check something there, you go to the computer, uh, you look at various, whatever you see in the first few moments sets the agenda for your day. If that's true, then why don't you just take me up on this offer? Let one of the first things you digest every day, let it be meditation upon God. Let it be focused upon God's word. Just read a few verses of scripture. Just digest a little bit of God's truth. And I promise you, that will help set the agenda for your entire day. You and I ought not feast on the appetites of this world. You and I ought to feast on the very word of God. And by faith, take him into our life and allow him to set the agenda of the course of our day. Robert Munger says not only does he go to my library, my dining room, but he also goes to my living room. And in my living room, he sees the companions that I keep and the activities that I do. He sees what I do and who I do it with. And oftentimes, these things are not pleasing unto the Lord. And so Robert Munger says that Jesus comes in and he evicts those who ought not be there and he replaces bad activities with holy activities. My friends, is there anything in your life that's off limits to Jesus, that if Jesus were to come in and say, hey, I want a guided tour of your existence, is there any person, is there anything, is there any activity that you want to hide from the Lord? When he goes into your living room, what companion does he find? What activity does he find that you keep? And then Robert Munger completes his thought and he says, Jesus inevitably always wants to open up the closet hall room, the hall room closet. You know, whenever you have anybody come into your house, what do you put in the closet in the, hall, in, in the hallway? What, what do you put in there? I mean, it's supposed to be jackets and hats and all that, right? But if you have a visitor come in, you throw everything in that closet. 
because you know nobody's going to open that door. So you throw everything in that, everything you don't want anybody to see. You throw it in the closet and you shove it closed. And Robert Munger says, inevitably, Jesus walks down the hallway, he sees the closet door, and he opens it. And what happens when you open that door? All the things that you want hidden fall out for everybody to see. And how embarrassing that is, right? Jesus walks through your life, and if you knew he was coming, is there anything that you would throw in the closet, in the hallway? Is there anything you put behind the door and say, Jesus, I really, I do not want you to see this. I don't want you to see how I use my phone. I don't want you to see the images that I look at. I don't want you to see how I use my money. I don't want you to see this inappropriate relationship. I don't want you to see any of this. I just want to put it in the closet and hope that you're just going to walk right past the door. But inevitably, Jesus always goes down the hallway, reaches for the handle, turns the knob, and opens that which you want to keep secret. And all the secret things are laid bare for everybody to see. Paul says, I'm praying for you, church. I pray that God may strengthen you with his power so that Christ may dwell in you and be at home in you. Not only does he pray for that, but secondly, Paul prays that you may be rooted and established in love. These are two metaphors that carry a, uh, an agrarian idea and a construction idea. I pray that you may be rooted in love. That's the imagery of a farmer sowing a crop in a field. That you may be rooted in love. That you may be established in love. The word established is a construction term. It means, uh, it's the idea of a mason laying a sure foundation so that everything you build in your life is built on the firm foundation of the love of the Lord. Paul says, I pray that you and you and you and you, that y'all may be rooted and established in love so that together with the saints, you may know how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ. Those terms reveal the completeness of God's love and the vastness of God's love. If I were to ask you, how wide is the love of Christ? What would you say? How wide is it? Well, you could say it's as wide as one nail-scarred hand to the other. That's how wide the love of Christ is. In keeping in mind of what Paul is talking about in the Ephesian letter, uh, you could also say that it's as wide as to embrace any believer, Jew or Gentile. Anybody who comes to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is embraced by Christ. I've told you before that you have more in common with a believer who lives in a hut in Ethiopia than you do with a biological uncle who sits across from you every Thanksgiving but who's lost as a goose. You have more in common with somebody who claims Christ as sovereign over their life than any biological brother or sister, cousin, aunt, uncle who is not a believer. How wide is the love of Christ? I'll tell you this much. Last Sunday, after the third service, we celebrated the fact then in a little more than two years, God has added 400 people to this church. 400 
people have been added to this faith family since January 2015 to February 2017. How wide is the love of Christ? It's wide enough to embrace 400 people. And by the way, we ain't done yet. It's wide enough to embrace as many people as possible. Jew, Gentile, it doesn't matter. Pagan, religious, it doesn't matter. Anybody who comes to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, it is wide enough to embrace them into this faith family. Anyone who declares Jesus is sovereign king over their life. That's how wide the love of Christ is. How long is the love of Christ? Well, I can tell you this much. It's as long as eternity past to eternity future. The love that God has for you never diminishes and it never wanes. God loves you as much as he loved Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God loves you as much as he loved Rebecca and Rachel and Esther. God loves you as much as he loves any other believer in this house right now. God loves you as much as he's going to love anybody in the future who comes to him by faith. God's love goes from eternity past to eternity future. How high is the love of God? It reaches to the heavens. Because in heaven, what are they doing? They are proclaiming the praise and the goodness of God's love both now and forevermore. How low, how deep is the love of Christ? It is deep enough to reach down and pull you up out of any dirty deed, any dingy sin, and place you upon the solid rock, the Lord Jesus Christ, so that salvation can be granted to anyone, anytime, any place, independent of any sin, because God's love is able to reach us. It, it goes as wide, it goes as long, it goes as high, it goes as deep. And Paul says, I pray that you may be rooted and established in love so that you will know the vastness and the completeness of the love of God is this what we pray for each other is this how we pray for each other when was the last time you prayed oh Lord I I pray that you may strengthen my brother with power so that Christ may dwell in him I pray that my sister may be rooted and established in love so that she may know just how vast and complete your love is for her is this how we pray is this what we pray and then third and finally Paul says, I pray that you may know this love that surpasses knowledge. The word know means to know by experience. It means to know personally. It means to know not just in theory, but in practice. I pray that you know this love. It's a love that surpasses knowledge. One day, Louis Armstrong was asked to explain jazz. And he said, and I quote, man. If I got to explain it to you, then you ain't got it. This is what Paul is saying. I am asking for you to know a love that cannot be explained. It goes beyond knowledge. Yet you know that you know that you know that you got it. You know when God has loved you. You know when God has redeemed you. You know when God has washed away your sins. You know when God has given you meaning and purpose in life. You just know the love of God. How do you explain that? Well, if I got to explain it to you, you ain't got it yet. It's a knowledge that goes beyond knowledge. It's, it's to know the love of God that goes beyond knowing the love of God. It surpasses all human understanding. Do you remember the one indictment 
that Jesus levels against the Ephesian church, he has one indictment against the Ephesian believers. It's not given in this letter written by Paul. It's given by Jesus himself. When he writes in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, to the church at Ephesus, this same church, Jesus says, I know your deeds. I know your activity. I know your actions. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men. I know that you test prophets and the false ones you kick out. But there's one thing I have against you. You have forsaken your first love. You have forsaken your first love. First in chronology, first in prominence. Friends, let me ask you, if you are a Christian, if you're a baptized believer in the Lord, has there ever been a time when you love Jesus more than you do today? Has there ever been a time in your life when you were more passionate about Christ than you are today? Has there ever been a time when you were more dedicated to the service of the Lord than you are today? If the answer is yes to any of those questions, then I say to you what Jesus said to the church at Ephesus when he said, repent and start doing the things you used to do. Because we are in a love relationship with the Lord, a love that goes beyond knowledge so that there ought never be a time when we love God more than we do right now. Where we're worshiping God more faithfully than we are right now. Where we're serving him more passionately than we are right now. This is the one thing that Jesus had against the church at Ephesus. And I wonder if he levels the same indictment against you and against me. Paul says, I pray that you may know the love that goes beyond knowledge. My friends, what a great prayer we could offer to God for each other. Lord, please. Please, will you help my brothers and sisters to be strengthened this day by the power of God? The same power that raised them from the dead, spiritually speaking, but that same power guide them today so that Christ may dwell in their hearts. Oh God, please. Help my brothers, my sisters to be rooted and established in love so that they can begin to understand the completeness of your love. How wide and long, high and deep is the love of Christ. And Lord, please, will you help my brother right back there? Will you help my sister right down here? Will you help that person right up there in the back? Will you help that family over there? Help them to know the love of God that goes beyond human knowledge. Paul gets to the end of this prayer and his pen just explodes. I mean, I really think it, it explodes. I mean, I think he can't write fast enough. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, both now and forevermore. Amen. He can't write it fast enough. He's talking about this God who is able, able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask, think, or imagine. May this God be evident in these people's lives, both now and forevermore, in this church and in that church, both now and forevermore. May they know the God who is able. This morning, church, I came to tell you that the God who spoke the world into existence, he is able. The God who flung the stars into space and set the planets in orbit, he is able. The God who 
taught the sun how to shine, the birds how to fly, and the fish how to swim, he is able. The God who preserved the promise through the worldwide flood, he is able. The God who rescued over a million Israelites from their Egyptian captivity, part of the Red Sea, so they could cross on dry land, he is able. The God who protected Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace, he is able. The God who shut up the mouths of the lions in Daniel's den, he is able. The God who raised an army out of a valley of dry bones for Ezekiel, he is able. The God who preserved Jonah in the smelly belly of the fish and forgave him even in his open defiance, he is able. The God who raised the dead, healed the sick, opened the eyes of the blind, he is able. The God who said to Jairus' daughter, to Lithicaum, and the little girl got up, he is able. The God who transformed the tax collector named Zacchaeus, he is able. The God who could even use a redneck named Peter, he is able. The God who could use the brash, arrogant, religious man named Paul. He is able. The God who came and stepped out of heaven and stepped in the earth through the birth canal of a virgin girl, lived a perfect life, died on the cross for your sins and for mine, and on the third day was raised from the dead. I'm here to tell you, he is able. He's able to retrieve the prodigal from a far country. He's able to re-spark romance in a marriage of a husband and a wife. He is able to open the door of employment. He is able to heal the sick. He's able to remove cancer. He's able to mend relationships. He is able to do immeasurably more we can ever ask, think, or imagine. He's able to forgive you of your secret sins. He's able to give you a new lease on life. He's able to embrace you by the love of Christ. He's able to call you unto his faith family. Our God is able. He's able to do immeasurably more we can ever ask, think, or imagine to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. I came to tell you at the very back row of the balcony, I came to tell you to the front row of the first pew, our God is able. I don't know what you drag into the sanctuary. Let me say it another way. I don't know what drags you into the sanctuary. But regardless of what it is, he is able. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. And Lord, you have been with us all weekend. You've spoken to our students and to our adults. You've called us to exchange the world for God's glory. That invitation is the same this morning. We pray that you will just show up and show off this morning. Draw people to yourself. Maybe there are some people here who need to come and kneel and pray. Let us pray as it was given us an example in the Holy Scripture. Let us pray for each other's strength. Let us pray that one another will be rooted and established in your love. Let us pray that we will know this love that goes beyond knowledge. Oh God, hear our prayers. If there's one here who needs to accept you by faith, let it be so today. If there's one here who needs to join this faith family, let it be done today. If there's one here in need of prayer, let them come forward today. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen.